0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The Dow climbed some 750 points on Friday as the market has its best day since June on an array of factors, including a growing sense that the coming recession is more likely to be mild than severe. Still, it was a volatile week, as worries continue about earnings and another interest rate hike by the Federal Reserve. Despite the economy and what could be permanently changed work habits, air travel continues to, as the number of parked aircraft continues to decrease, driving demand for new aircraft. The question is, what kind of new aircraft? As we discussed last week, United is ordering some wide-body jets. A week after firing her chancellor after a disastrous proposal to cut taxes and increase spending, Britain's Prime Minister Liz Truss resigned after just 44 days in office to become the shortest tenure UK chief executive in history. Another leadership race is on as Britain looks to its fifth prime minister in six years. In a bid to rebuild market confidence in the UK economy, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt uh, will week after next announce tax increases and spending cuts all eyes are on what happens to defense spending. As Ukraine prepares its offensive to regain territory occupied by Russia, Moscow has unleashed a barrage of Iranian drones against Ukrainian infrastructure as Europe ponders its outlook for defense spending and how to quickly rebuild depleted weapons and uh, ammunition stocks. Lockheed Martin reported earnings in line with Wall Street expectations and some takeaways from the National Business Aviation Association's uh, annual conference and trade show down in Orlando. And in a dramatic move, a federal judge in Texas has said uh, that the families of the 346 people killed in two Boeing 737 Maxjet crashes can sue the company despite a $2.5 billion settlement between the company uh, and the Justice Department. He found that, quote, the tragic loss of life that resulted from the two airplane crashes was a reasonably foreseeable consequence of Boeing's conspiracy to defraud the United States, uh, end quote, and that the de- dead can be considered crime victims. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuesday of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Amalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Sash is going to be joining us later in the program, but first we're going to hear... From Ron and Richard, guys, welcome back to the program. Great to have you back on. Uh, great
1: to be here, Vago. Thanks.
0: Always great to be on, Vago. Thank you. Indeed. And it's a pleasure having you guys on. And I know that uh, as as everybody gets out and about, sometimes it's a little bit harder uh, for us to all be together. Uh, Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And our uh, coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cabot Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Ron, uh, let's start with you, as we always do. Market uh, was very volatile this week, but ended up consensus is that the recession is more likely to be be mild uh, than uh, severe, but earnings are down uh, across the board. We can talk about Lockheed and what that means for the group going forward in a minute. But what were the major drivers and how the group performed this week? Yeah, Vago, there was a a bunch of crosswinds. I I would
1: say there's still a debate in the market um, as to um where the how high the Fed's going to go you know when the Fed's going to stop and uh you know I would say the debate now is is this a, a bear market rally or a bull market right and you know who knows right but that I think that's that's broadly the debate when you look at you know the things we look at every week um the first thing to start with is I think you know the government the 10-year bond uh you know the 10-year ended the week at 422 or 4.22 4. percent um which is as high as it's been in a very long time. And at one point uh, on Friday, it was actually 4.3. So we're seeing the the 10-year climb, pricing in, um, more Fed increases. Uh, What you hear is probably another 75 basis point increase, and then we'll see where they go from there. Um, When you look broadly at the market, so the S&P this week was a strong week for the S&P. It was up just under 5%, at 4.75%. Uh, Boeing was up six percent, and you would think, geez, that's great. However, um, Raytheon was up seven point two percent, and the champion of the week was Lockheed, who was up almost seventeen percent of the week. Uh, Northrop Grumman was up almost thirteen uh, percent, as was L three Harris. So, you know, the, the defense stocks had a, a a very very strong week, in no small part due to uh, Lockheed's numbers. Uh, but you're seeing this, what you're seeing in the market, I think, is expectations are are pretty low. Um, so if companies come in and do better than low expectations, even if it's not great, it's better than where the expectations were, which implies short covering. So you're seeing some stocks make some big, big moves on, uh, on, on that dynamic. Um, and then, you know, the other thing we we keep an eye on are oil prices, you know, WTI crude ended the week at 85 Brent roughly around 95 and the VIX ended the week around 30. So, you know, that VIX is even though. We ended the week on an up,
0: a nice uptick. Um, the VIX around 30 still implies a lot of volatility in the market. Um, and and what were Lockheed's uh, earnings, right? And what does this tell us about the group? They were, uh, they did come in at consensus, right? I think they were a penny short of where you were, uh, so it falls within consensus uh, ballpark, uh, right? I mean, you were at 672, and I think they came in at 671, am I right, on EPS EPS? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. But I, I think the story really wasn't the you know the print on the quarter, but um, the other things. So they came out and said um, they're going to do a a gigantic um, uh, repurchase program, uh, an accelerated repurchase program in in the fourth quarter to the tune of I think it was four billion share four billion dollars worth of shares. Um, and so if you look at the size of the repurchase program, it was it was very big, and they and they were very clear. You know, we're not we're not doing M and A right now, so the cash that we have, we're going to give back to shareholders. And in fact, we're going to lever up the balance sheet and give some of that back to shareholders too. That was very, very well received. And then I would also add probably the the biggest point of of question uh, in the investment community today. And when we spoke about, you know, the association, the U.S. Army show, I think it was last week or the week before, uh, investors are acutely uh, looking at, acutely aware of uh, the future vertical lift. Pilara, mm-hmm. down downselect, which has you know Lockheed uh, competing against uh, Textron Bell. And the question on the call that was asked about that, I think was handled quite well. So people may have walked away from this call. I think the investment community has the view with a very with a very high probability of Bell winning it. After this call, maybe people were scratching their heads. Um so I think there was some of that. But probably the thing that really, really moved the market, at least for Lockheed, was uh, what they're doing with their cash flow. Right.
0: And, and what was um, and and what is and how is it that people were uh, scratching their heads? I think that's interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, um, Jim Takeley, Lockheed's um, CEO, uh, answered the question and really talked about some of the performance characteristics of a helicopter um, when they're around tree line and things that you can do with a helicopter that you can't do with a tilt rotor. And, and we've written about this. The, the decision that the army has to make ultimately is the helicopter is not a tilt rotor, a tilt rotor is not a helicopter, they're very different machines. They're very good at different things. And the army just has to decide do they want strawberry or vanilla? Um, because it's not like strawberry light or you know yeah. what do you call it? Vanilla bean versus French vanilla. They're very, they're very different
0: machines. So right. the army just has to decide. And and in fairness, um, you know, one is a tilt rotor and the other one is a compound coaxial helicopter, which is you know taller than your average helicopter and you know has other, uh, you know, it's a, a spinning propeller in the back. So I mean, both of them are very very different uh, than than what would be in the army inventory. Even if one looks more like a helicopter and the other one is a tilt rotor, um, they are. Uh, different uh, than uh, any of the aircraft that have performed this role uh, in the past in the United States uh, Army inventory. Although I would point out uh, for the record that the uh, importance of operating along tree lines and, lo- and the like is much more of a far requirement for the armed, uh, future armed reconnaissance aircraft. Uh, and, you know, the Marine Corps would tell you, uh, as Bell and Boeing would tell you about the V 22. Uh, It is a tilt rotor that's been operating in tree lines and operational circumstances all around the world, including in combat zones, right? So uh, in as as much as there's a role for a helicopter, there's also a role for uh, tilt rotors. And again, I mean, the Army's talked about range and speed as its primary requirements for uh, the aircraft. So, uh, what, you know, all eyes are on how the competition is is going to uh, end up. Anyway, moving on. Um, Richard, let me uh, bring you into the discussion. Uh, do you want to uh, talk a little bit about Lockheed earnings? Because then I've got a follow-up question on that great New York Times story about how, you know, even if uh, work habits have changed, travel is uh, surging, right? And we're seeing uh, that continuing trend. Uh, and I want to sort of get to where you think that drives uh, the market. But uh, give us your sense on Lockheed earnings and what the takeaways were. Because, you know, speaking for a mutual friend, uh, Byron Callan of Capital Alpha Partners, right, he'd say this is kind of an unimaginative answer, right? Take all your cash and stuff it into a share, another big share buyback. Yay.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Just sort of backing up a bit, the two, uh stories that you just mentioned have one thing in common, which is supply constraints. And, you know, Lockheed Martin produces great products, great engineering. Are they the most commercially imaginative company on the planet? Certainly not. And I think that strategy, you know, okay, take the cash, put it back to investors. It it certainly made people happy, as Ron said. But, you know, the situation is the backlog for F-35 271 with a lot more being negotiated. In other words, well into the 300-whatever guidance for this year is disappointing. It was you know, reduced to just 147 to 153, I believe, rather than the 156 that was hoped. But the one data point that really came out that I hadn't been paying attention to was that 88 were delivered year to date, which means either there's going to be a further disappointment or they're going to have the wonderful blowout fourth quarter that would be required to get them to 147. Eg, you know, about sixty more jets. Um, this seems to be something that I mean, maybe it's maybe it's not much they can do, right? Maybe it's multiple tiers of the supply chain that are just straining and groaning. But of course, it, it also feeds into the second story, uh, which of course is you know, as you mentioned, airline orders and and demand and advanced bookings for the airlines, whatever else, things are much better than expected. Everyone thought we'd be able to catch our breath as an industry after the, um, you know, wonderful summer days that we enjoyed. It was the first real full throttle post-pandemic summer. Um, But things aren't slowing down. And they gave a variety of sociological reasons for that, you know, remote work, people, you know, whatever. It's hard to tell what's going on. You never can draw bigger picture of conclusions from one quarter's outlook in airline travel. But right now, things look really good for the fall. And here again, uh, it's capacity. And United announced that some of their 7.8s and some of their 7.3 maxes are slipping into the next year. Boeing has issues across the board. There are questions about the engine side of things, Boeing even taking engines from the maxes that were going to be delivered to China and putting them on other jets that will not go to China, but are still needed by other people. Uh, there are all kinds of supply constraints. So I guess that's the big theme here. Just market demand is excellent. You know, that's, that's my job, market analyst, and I can say things are excellent. And what I say has very little to do with reality because <laughs> the production side of things is a completely different story.
0: Yeah, you you want Richard giving you market analysis? Being on the ramp with a wrench, actually building the airplane, maybe maybe somewhat not. Um, exactly, and, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't trust me either, uh, even though I think I'm pretty decent with a wrench. Um, Ron, let me uh, go to you. I mean, and 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 sort of get your take. Right? I mean, you guys did a parked uh, aircraft. Uh, survey right less airplanes parked which means you know obviously more demand which is uh great uh, our mutual friend and and your partner uh richard kevin michaels has talked about this right i mean uh, you know unfortunately these airplanes w- were not in grave condition after being parked for too long right i mean they, they they are able to be resuscitated relatively quickly um what do you what do you guys see as the parked aircraft trend and what that means for demand ron
1: yeah i mean it's just to follow up on what richard said i mean there's there's not enough air cream, aircraft being produced by the OEMs, uh, both, both Boeing and Airbus. Uh, and they're both um, straddled with supply chain constraints across many different vectors, right? I mean, there's engines, but yeah, other things too. I mean, kind of a theme you hear is in kind of the tier two and tier three suppliers that it, it's sort of like they're playing a game of whack-a-mole. Um, they have one issue, they sort it out and another one pops up and another one pops up. and And for the supply chain, it's, a, for sure a challenge. But they can deliver piece parts, maybe not everything, but they can still deliver piece parts. For an OE, it's a big problem because you can't deliver ninety nine percent of the airplane. You need right. all of it, right? So um, that that throttle, that throttling of production, just where you're going to get lift, you're going to take it out of stored airplanes, and that's right. and that's what you're seeing happening. Um, so you know the stored fleet coming down is is generally always uh, seen as a, a bullish indicator um and then it's you know stored aircraft going down is sort of a, 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 a how I say it, it's a double whammy right because they're older airplanes that might need some servicing but then they're also older airplanes that aren't being cut up for parts so right. um, you, you're not getting this buildup of serviceable used material uh, that you might expect if these things were all retired and then parted out. So, um, which implies a lot of aftermarket demand, kind of lines at MRO shops, um, and, uh, you know, kind of a, a generally pretty bullish aftermarket.
0: Uh, let me um, shift very uh, quickly uh, because I want to get to NBAA, the National Business Aviation Association's uh, annual show down in Orlando, the base uh, show, business aviation conference and exhibition. Uh, but I wanted to, Ron, get get your sense right. I mean, we've been hearing on uh, the program, and 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 I'm sure Sash is going to discuss it about European spending uh, trends. You know, on our Friday podcast, we discussed that. You know, even though. Europe is grappling with inflationary pressures and energy pressures uh, and food short, shortfalls uh, that governments remain pretty committed to actually increasing their uh, defense spending and, and rearming. Uh, effectively, recognizing that munition stocks are low and basically the United States is going to play an important role in that. We talked to the Army Under Secretary Gabe Camarillo, uh, it was a great conversation at AUSA, where he talked about, look, it's it's not so much as issuing new contracts, we're trying to use existing contracts to rebuild our stocks uh, of these uh, systems and to do it more rapidly uh ultimately um you know the rest of the group is is going to report what are your expectations and how defense spending uh, and investment is going to play on it because the u.s budget is, is still high even if republicans are saying hey you know if if we win in november is is widely expected they will both in the house and senate you know we're, we're not going to be you know you know neither ukraine gets a blank check nor does the pentagon right suggesting that there might be a, a downturn or at least no further growth What's what's your sort of expectation and the street's expectation about uh, on what we're going to be hearing from everybody else who's going to be reporting over the coming weeks?
1: Yeah, so probably pretty similar to, to Lockheed. Um, there, there was a you know a bar set now about returning capital to shareholders uh, late in the week. L three Harris announced a big share buyback program. Uh, so I think the, the question will be when you know, when Raytheon reports and when. Northrop reports and just kind of go down the list. You know, what are you going to do with the capital? How are you going to deploy it? That that kind of thing. I think there's this recognition that in the current political environment, you can't do much M&A. So if you can't do much M&A and you're, you're not investing all that much in organic growth, then what are you going to do with the capital? And most folks would just want you to give it back to shareholders, at least from a shareholder perspective. So, so, so I think that, I mean, it's interesting. You know, we track outlays from the U.S. Treasury, and outlays from the U.S. Treasury actually, you know, I think they're down for the fiscal year, um, and they've lagged the budget pretty meaningfully, which implies that there'll be, I guess, programmed money that wasn't spent this year that will probably be spent next year. So there's a, uh, like everything else we're seeing in the world, some pent up demand that's being created because of supply chain issues and and other issues. So as we get into next year, there might be some surprise because of that. And then on your comment around if you know the, the the politics of the hill changes, you know, one thing that we that you've seen before that if you know the the GOP takes over both the House and the Senate, could you see at least headlines that are talking about um you know, kind of more more critical on on spending? Yeah, probably. In in the current global environment, does that ultimately end up translating into less defense spending? We'll see. But, um, I mean, I think it's a reasonable expectation to at least expect the headlines.
0: Um, Richard, let me uh, bring you in, and uh, you can start us off on our uh, takeaways from NBAA. Uh, I should note that Maverick's owner and Shark Tank star Mark Cuban uh, makes the case that while private jets are increasingly being criticized on sustainability grounds, um, everyone forgets the factor that time uh, is a finite resource, right? I mean, the, one of the reasons why everybody is drawn to these is that it, they are time machines, uh, ultimately. So, I mean, I thought I'd throw that in there. What were some of the most interesting takeaways from your standpoint, and Ron, want to get your sense, and then very briefly uh, talk about the the Boeing news and what that means, because that's pretty much of a, of a stunner. Go ahead, Richard.
2: Yeah, um, I'm not sure everyone forgets that it's about time. You know, I mean, I, I think people have been marketing... Uh, Business jets as quote time machines unquote for years now, and the one thing that really hits you walking around NBAA, whether it's the convention hall or the actual you know airport where all the jets are parked, and you can do go to the petting zoo, is that it's you very you see very few uh, Mark Cubans or Mark Wahlbergs or whoever else you see their people, and they typically have massive teams of people who run the show because that's the whole point of a time machine. You have people doing things for you, whether it's fueling, maintaining, piloting, or running flight departments or whatever else. It's just such a massive infrastructure and a big employer, I would add, too. You know, the only thing you could possibly say bad about business yet Is you know the whole environmental aspect which yeah it doesn't look good and gets negative press now and again but everything else boy you know smoke if you got them i mean <laughs> wonderful time savings absolute luxury a real pleasure um just it, the optics just aren't good but that certainly wasn't deterring anybody it looks like a pretty strong show you know if we had, had this show six months ago, I think it would have just been, oh, my God, why are we here? Let's get out there and build more jets. And now it's merely things are still pretty good. They're not ridiculously massive exploding demand, but things are still pretty good. You know, The percent of jets available is near record. Pricing is still increasing. Utilization softening a little bit, particularly in charter and fractional, which might be an indication of, well, there's trouble in Europe, and uh, there might be an indication of some kind of looming recession, but still, things are pretty darn good. Uh, the only thing I can tell you is that, that from the standpoint of the the Jed makers, you know, the five major and three or four minor folks involved, um, everyone has, you know, it's like everyone, everyone has put all of their new product development resources into the top end. Um, in other words, there's exciting, wonderful stuff happening. In jets that cost more than sixty-five million dollars, you know everything else—the sort of workaday Cessnas and Embraers—it's same old jet, cranking them out, doing a good job. In terms of the new, exciting stuff, it's really at the top. You've got Gulfstream replacing the 650 ER with the G700 and 800, both impressive machines. You've got Bombardier replacing, effectively replacing the 7500 with the Global 8000, and even more monstrously impressive hugely capable machine and then most of all you've got a third newcomer to the 80 million dollar class with the Dassault and the falcon 10x there was a you know fuselage mock-up on display it too is extremely Mm -hmm. impressive Uh, so i can't help but wonder if there isn't going to be a case of stuff you know dancing at the top and smaller marsupials getting crushed around it if there's any kind of downturn because you know these guys are clearly hell-bent for leather on building a minimum of about a hundred of these Big mega megadon beasts per year, and uh, that means if the market softens, then trade ins and whatever else take a hit, residual values take a hit, and uh, all the segments beneath them get damaged. But right now, little worry because things are really quite good.
0: I, I didn't know that there was a marsupial penning zoo, so that's uh, that's interesting uh, to know that they had that at metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, we, we see that. Uh, Ron, uh, what, were, what were your takeaways? Yeah, I largely agree
1: with Richard on pretty much every point he, he raised. It's a couple of things I would add. When you talk to the broker community compared to the OEM community, the brokers are more conservative, right? The brokers uh, seem to be more uh, um, concerned about uh, economics, what's going on in the economy. Uh, as we roll into next year, the bonus depreciation changes Right. you can depreciate you know 100 percent of a business jet today if it's used for business 51 percent of the time used for business purposes um, next year that goes down to 80 uh, percent and but remember you know brokers don't have inventory or at least not inventory they don't have backlogs right so they might have some inventory but they don't have many airplanes and they don't have backlogs so you know the change in the economy is is, is very immediate for them and I would say if you talk to most of them there was more concern about uh, you know the broader economic outlook um, I would add to um, you know the, the conversation, strength in pricing, supply chain. Even though it's a challenge, might be helping us because it's constraining supply, and therefore, if we do get into some softer times, the industry won't have the opportunity to hurt itself by massively overproducing, because right. the supply chain is forcing them not to. Um, so you know the supply chain. I think you know, is interestingly enough. Different than you know, large civil um, is seen as maybe a little bit of an ex blessing in that you know we can get pricing and it might be helping us um, and preventing us as an industry from hurting ourselves by by producing uh, too many airplanes. You know, other than that, I
0: think you know Richard was
1: just
0: dead on all his I, parts. I, Just really quickly, I mean, if you're talking about you know megalodons uh, of the sky, to really mix your metaphors. Um, you know, where does Boeing, Airbus, right, Bombardier, uh, where do those guys fall in the market? Because I suppose, right, if you're the Sultan of Brunei, you can use a 747 with gold-plated fixtures, well, well, yeah, right? I mean, in,
1: interestingly, if you look at, you know, Boeing, uh, Boeing business jets or, you know, a, a corporate version of a, or a private version of a of 787 or 747 or uh, Airbus corporate jets, um, you know, they're, they're, The bulk of what they sell is either based on a seven three seven or an A three twenty or an A three nineteen. They don't sell that many of them per year. Um, It's more of a niche airplane. Their operations tend to be more constrained than a smaller business jet, and then other things too. Time, time to altitude, and other you know assets, aspects of how a business jet it's you know flying properties, handling qualities that are just different than they are for a large commercial airplane. Uh, That being said, I, I did find it kind of ironic that airbus is marketing a business jet corporate jet version of the a220 so sort of in a way you know airbus is taking uh what was at one point a bombardier product and putting it back in the market and competing against bombardier at at the highest level and there probably is a little bit of overlap between the highest global uh and and an A220, right? they're both right. very very large airplanes.
0: We have very little time left, unfortunately, and I wanna get your guys sense on the extraordinary verdict by the uh, federal judge in, in Texas, uh, effectively uh, you know, saying that families uh, of the 346 who died, as I mentioned in the introduction, can challenge the $2.5 billion settlement between Boeing uh, and the Justice Department, basically saying that, uh, quote, the tragic loss of life that resulted from the two airplane crashes was a reasonably foreseeable consequence of Boeing's conspiracy to defraud uh, the United States. And so the dead are crime victims uh, and and then consent, uh, can seek redress. This is very, very early. Um, we're on a weekend, uh, but wanted to get your sense you know what this means, whether there's precedent and how you guys uh, see it. Ron, why don't you start us off, and then Richard finish up. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not
1: sure if there's precedent or not. I mean, there's nothing that jumps right out at me, so you know that might have some meaning in and of itself. And then, you know, finally, what's it all mean? It, it's honestly hard to say, Vago. But it, it's just you know one more one more challenge, one more headline, one more thing that just kind of complicates the story.
2: Yeah, complete agreement with Ron, you know, totally unprecedented, nothing like this. And uh, just an awfully complicated situation. So, you know, but this does leave the company open to everything being reviewed again. And again, you know, the optics aren't going to be great, if nothing else.
0: Uh, And and ensures, unfortunately, from Boeing's perspective, uh, that we continue talking about these issues, but then can understand from the standpoint of the 346 uh, who died and their families uh, that, you know, they want that it appears that there was more to this story than simple mistakes were made, right? That there was a a drive on the part of the company uh, to to, to certainly do things differently than it had historically done. That's Uh, right. And I think also, you know,
2: there is the cultural aspect that I think really should be explored. You know, how did they get to this place? You know, I remember Ron in the middle of it saying, how did this happen? And that hasn't been completely satisfactorily answered. Uh, to a lot of people. And I understand that.
0: Guys, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it, especially on such a busy weekend for you both, uh, for you all. Thanks very, very much. Really appreciate it. Have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.
2: And Great to be here, Vago. Thank you. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks, Vago. Good to be on.
0: And joining us now, as he does each week, albeit uh, apart from the rest of the group, is Sash Tusa of the independent uh, London equity research firm, Agency Partners. Uh, Sash, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thank you very much indeed,
3: Vargo. It's great to be back. All feeling a bit lonely without Richard and Ron, clearly. Uh,
0: exactly, exactly. But alas, uh, as we all get more out and about uh, than than normal, uh, it it becomes uh, it, it becomes a challenge. Um, so certainly a very very big week uh, in the United States. The sixty pence uh, Tesco uh, head of lettuce outlasted uh, Liz Truss, uh, who becomes the shortest serving prime minister in British history at 44 days. Uh, And obviously, there's going to be a leadership race. You called it. You didn't think she was going to make it the week. uh, And you were uh, right. Um, Let's start with uh, markets uh, first, right? As we heard from Ron, uh, you know, a a positive week, uh, you know, at least Wall Street ending up better than it did since June, uh, up about 750 points, Uh, a sense that the recession that's coming might be a little milder. Uh, than people had uh, uh, anticipated. That said, it's being reflected in earnings, which is also driving concerns. Feds raising rates, inflation is a bigger pro- problem in Europe. How did the group perform on European markets this week,
3: Look, European, or I should say last week? Yeah, <laughs> European aerospace and defense stocks had a pretty good week last week. Interestingly, they didn't close the week that well. I mean, you know, generally off, yeah, you know, half a point to a point. And my guess would be actually they'll open. Um, you know, this week, significantly better just with the tailwind from Wall Street. But um, it was an interesting mix because it wasn't that, you know, if if we think that this is all about the recession, not going to be as bad as people had feared, then you would expect civil aerospace stocks to outperform defense stocks. But we just look at the four biggest um, prime contractors or four of the biggest prime contractors out there, Airbus, BA Systems, Safran and Thales. Airbus closed the week up about 5%. BA systems up about three. Well, that would tend to suggest that, you know, civil outperforming defence because the recession isn't going to be that bad. But then Safran, which is very heavily civil, up 4% and Thales up 6%. Um, perhaps this is all just rounding errors in, in the week and it'll um, sort itself out Monday, Tuesday uh, of the week to come. But, I, you know, I, I think that there is broadly a, um, a greater confidence um, that Uh, the the recessionary impact is not going to be quite as bad as expected there's also for the defense stocks a recognition that the war and we'll come back to this but you know the war in ukraine is going to persist in some form and the effect of that in terms of european defense spending is going to carry on well through the middle of the decade and possibly into the next decade and i think that some of the european stocks as well got a little bit of support paradoxically from the reports, whether accurate or not, that the uh, Republicans in the US would like to cut off um, uh, continued military support to Ukraine. Because when reports like that come out and when reports um, possibly of uh, you know, the return of President Trump at the uh, next elections come out, then there is a realization among European investors that uh, Europe is much more likely to have to pay a lot more of its way and possibly even do its own defence entirely. On a, you know, this is on a five-year view. Uh, and if that's the case, then um, European defence stocks are going to have, you know, are, get, are going to have a very, very strong, sustained cycle uh, this decade because European defence spending is going to go up. Um, and you know, we've said for some time, we've actually been saying since uh, the, the start of the invasion, uh, of the invasion in Ukraine, that the the two percent of uh, GDP. Um, NATO defence target is rapidly becoming a floor rather than a ceiling. Um, and you're now starting to see some nations actually talk about two and a half percent, three percent. You know, uh, But the, you know, these are very, very big uh, changes in how European nations look at defence spending. They may not like it. They may not be able to afford it. But defence is almost um, never uh, uh, you know, expenditure that, that nations like. Uh, and certainly their finance ministers like. It's just what you've got to do when you've got to do it.
0: Talking a a little bit about that level of investment, your take matches uh, that of uh, former uh, the Pentagon's former Europe chief, uh, Jim Townsend of the Center for uh, a New American Security, who's a regular on our Washington Roundtable and joined us from the RIGA conference. Uh, And he... Sort of said that even if there are economic challenges and economic pressures, that investment is likely to remain uh, high. In part because European nations recognize they underinvested in defense in a serious way; they don't have enough munitions. Uh, in fact, there is not that much more aid that they can give Ukraine, even if they want to, and that they're increasingly, increasingly, for example, turning to Hanwha, uh, you know, as the Poles did for artillery, because you know they've got hotlines. Uh, It is a country that faces an existential threat in North Korea. And so are able to do this. You know, where are we going in sort of the globalization of defense, national boundaries in Europe, right? I mean, Europeans have have been uh, very keen, even if France is trying to lead a pan-European resuscitation of defense industrial spending and a more strategic at-home approach. um, You find countries that need capability are going to find it, whether they get it from the United States. And if they can't get it from the United States... They're making it clear that they're willing to go uh, to Korea to do it. Before we get to your sort of take on the war, and we'll get to Liz Truss in a a moment, how does this drive sort of different sort of investment patterns? And does this give an opportunity to, for example, Asian and Japanese and other suppliers that folks might not otherwise have considered, uh, South African, for example, in their drive to at least get capability and get it as quickly as they can?
3: There's a paradox which is. Or, or that-
0: Israeli, right? I mean, I would mean, add yeah. to this as well.
3: Yeah. No, look, you know, there, there, there is a paradox which is that um, European nations overall have not really started ordering yet. Poland is the, is, a, is a remarkable exception to that rule. You know, the Polish rearmament uh, of 2022 is uh, the standout case where a European nation looks at the situation, sees that it's changed, sees that they have to invest, and goes out and, and orders. but You know, we've talked to several dozen major European defense companies in the last two, three weeks or so. And almost without exception, they are saying, look, our orders for Q3, which ended at the end of September, really aren't up very much. We're not getting much orders. You know, if you're German, they're saying, well, we've had no orders from Germany yet, except for, you know, odds and sods, frankly. Um, The the big German hundred billion defense uh, spending probably won't start. With orders being placed until next year. Um, I find this remarkable, but so they saying, if you talk to companies exposed to the UK munitions market and say, so surely, given the UK has delivered large numbers of munitions to Ukraine, they're going to be backfilling, they say, haven't seen anything yet. You know, MED would quite like us to be starting production lines, but they're not prepared to commit and so forth. Um, France, you know, um, President Macron talks about France going to a war economy. If you talk to French defense companies, they say, Isn't happening yet. So, I, I, yeah, and this is, you know, it's a very consistent uh, refrain. I don't regard it as being anything that we should be in Europe terribly proud of. Um, But the order, you know, Poland is the standout at the moment. Poland is the exception. I hope that it isn't the exception for very long. Why are nations buying Polish, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Korean, Um, K9, the uh, self propelled artillery piece being the the standout? there are some particular issues. I mean, clearly, it's it's a relatively hot production line, or, um, although you could argue that so is BA systems with the uh, M109A7. I right. think that the self-propelled artillery market had become over-concentrated uh, in the last couple of years. You really were faced with BA systems North America with uh, the M109 Paladin variants thereof or uh, Krasma 5 Eggman and rhein with uh, Pisa, Panzer two, 2000. Um, Panzer 2000 is a highly sophisticated self-propelled howitzer and its price is nosebleed. M109, A6 or A7, love it to bits. It's an M109 that is as old as you and me and it's got a pretty short barrel. You know, it's, uh, it's probably at the end of it, at its Darwinian limits and it's pretty expensive. So, K9, which, to my mind, always looks a little bit like an M109, but I probably haven't looked at it closely enough, has the advantage coming from Korea. The Koreans want to uh, break into the market. I suspect their pricing is very significantly sharper. Um, They can, you know, supply is easier for them. And I think introducing a little bit of competitive uh, tension back into what had become an overly concentrated market. Yes, you could also buy the César, Uh, Wheeled howitzer as well from France, which is very very good, but um, some nations still quite traditional. They want tracks, they want heavy howitzers, and you know, new competitor from Korea who who are trying harder. I think works very well. The question is, how much more can they do that? I think the um, the next really important competition is going to be Land 400 Phase Three in Australia, which is the Australian requirement. For tracked infantry fighting vehicles, and the competition there is between Korea K21 Redback, which looks like a highly competent infantry fighting vehicle, tracked, heavy, and the Rheinmetall Lynx, which is a very, very sophisticated, um, hit very heavy, uh, tracked IFE. I suspect that the Koreans will cut their price more than Rheinmetall will, and that will be a really interesting case because if that's the case, then um, you know the Koreans will have got a, a foothold in another armored vehicle, another. Heavy weapon market, and I think they'll they'll really be on a roll. Uh,
0: it is uh, it is interesting that even though the US Army has been uh, updating uh, the vehicle and obviously now putting the 109 and putting it on a Bradley chassis, um, they're you know, it it the 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 tube length has always been uh, an issue about its ability uh, to reach. On the other hand, it it can use. Uh, the excalibur round which is which is game changing in its capabilities in terms of being precision uh in terms of the precision it brings a battlefield um let me uh, b- b- before we go uh to uh liz truss uh and the departure of her administration and what it means and you know it's astonishing to me that bojo uh, Boris johnson could be back uh again uh which is certainly interesting with even the potential endorsement of ben wallace the defense secretary who is not going to stand um what's your sense on where we are on the war and what you found to be most interesting and what's what's driving sort of the discussion there? Because, you know, there was a lot of jubilance, as we said, you know, folks having this tendency of like, oh, it's over with the Ukrainians and it'll be done by winter. Uh, now, all of a sudden, the Russians are using to great effect, even though many of the Iranian drones are being shot down, they're degrading uh, Ukraine's infrastructure. Uh, obviously, power is important, not just to heat people's homes. People are missing it. The reason the Russians are targeting it is, most of Ukraine's role, you know, rail network is run by electricity, and the Ukrainians need their rail networks if they're going to get munitions, uh, people, and capability, uh, you know, over to where the front is on what is a very large country. Um, you know, and and now you've got thousands of Russian troops that are in Belarus that suddenly have, you know, people have sort of been like, oh, wait a minute, you know, those guys could get called into action, and that changes the dynamic as well. Right now, the Ukrainians have been able to focus where they want to focus, not where the Russians necessarily want them to focus. Where, where are we and where are we going from your standpoint? What is it that stood out to you over the past week?
3: First, um, the window before autumn really takes, um, uh, takes hold uh, is pretty, pretty narrow and narrowing. And I think people tend to forget winter is actually, apart from the fact that it's pretty bloody cold, not a bad time for armoured operations, because you have firm going uh, and you can make very good going once, you know, um, if once you have broken through. The thing that always stops military operations in Eastern Europe and Russia historically has been spring and autumn, when you have heavy rains, temperatures are high, the ground turns to mud, and nobody can move wheeled or tracked vehicles very far or very fast or off roads, um, you know, and the Russians actually had that in the initial invasion because it had been a very warm winter, uh, uh, the winter of 2021, uh, 22. Um, and therefore they couldn't move off roads, even if they were you know, tactically right. and doctrinally capable of it. Um, and pretty soon, within the next week or so, there will be the mud, and that will slow things down a lot. After that, if when things freeze, and clearly that's quite a big if, given that it's been a very, very hot summer and a very mild autumn so far, then, um, campaigning conditions improve slightly. But you're absolutely right, you know, the Russians have gained a little bit of, of um, uh, the momentum, their own momentum back this week by attacking asymmetr- asymmetrically. They uh, Even just threatening some sort of advance from Belarus, even if they never do anything else, that opens or the threat of a new front. Ukrainians do not need a new front up in the north. Um, you know They want to concentrate on the east and the south. Um, the drones, again, Um, if the drones were just attacking um, Ukrainian civilian targets, you know, buildings, blocks of flats, and so forth, that would be a tragedy, but it would be militarily insignificant. Um, But the Russians are using them quite smart in terms of attacking power. Uh, And as you quite quite rightly point out, that does have an effect on, on the rail network. And I think the Ukrainian intercept rate for these drones is remarkably high. Any air defense system that with a single layer was intercepting three quarters of the, the the targets coming in, manned, unmanned, fast, slow, would be performing in military terms tremendously well. But the problem is the quarter that gets through are being very well targeted and they are putting the Ukrainians off balance. There's going to be a slew of air defense that's, that's going to turn up in Ukraine in the next um, uh, month or so. And the Ukrainians have shown an astonishing ability to absorb sophisticated weapons that Western armies would take six, nine, 12 months to, to think about bringing into effect. So the French are finally su- uh, supplying weapons. Um, and in particular, they, they promised the SAMP-T uh, medium range uh, surface-to-air missile system, which is very, very capable indeed. The Germans have been surprising, uh, su- su- supplying the RST uh, medium range system, again, highly sophisticated system. But air defense is all about layering and I wonder if the Ukrainians are going to have enough systems to sufficiently layer all of the targets they would like to protect. Um, I think that ultimately they probably have to go after the drone launches, and that's where it will become very, very political and very, very difficult um, for, uh, for them. But no, you know, the, 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 the advantage has tilted slightly back to the Russians. On the other hand, the Ukrainians are doing a very, very good job in Kherson, in where, uh, you know, the pocket is being squeezed tighter. Uh, the Russians are quite clearly preparing to or threatening to prepare to blow uh, a major dam, which would have an effect on the Djapodje, um nuclear power plant and just swamp the whole place as well. So that shows how desperate they are down in the south. Um, so we've got weather, we've got uh, asymmetric, um, uh, you know, uh, attacks by the Russians, which putting the, the Ukrainians slightly off balance. Um, but on the other hand, that is clearly stimulating the supply of weapons, particularly from Europe, that they wouldn't have got otherwise. So, um, you know, if if we talk next week and things have changed back again, that wouldn't be a surprise at the
0: uh, and uh, I should point out, Red UK donating AMRAMs, even though AMRAM is a US system that's in inventory, but obviously key, uh, and Iris-T, uh, the Germans are giving in its air defense guys, which uh, are both tremendous systems as well. Yeah, the, RR, uh, the
3: AMRAMs, as I understand it, are being donated for the NASAM system. Just one other thing I'd like to add, I think one of the stories that's developing in terms of the Western response to Russia uh, over Ukraine has been very, very confused messaging, particularly coming from Europe, about uh, how NATO might respond and how European nations might respond to Russian use of a a nuclear weapon. I don't think that uh, President Macron of France was at all helpful by saying uh, we would not use nuclear weapons in response. The whole point of of nuclear weapon uses is that it's supposed to be deeply ambiguous and hence that you deter because your opponent doesn't know how you use it. I think that the worrying thing as well is that if you're Putin, you may well think that a United Kingdom that doesn't have a terribly well-functioning government at the moment also might not respond to Russian use of attack, tactical nuclear weapon. Well, the UK and France are the two European nuclear weapons uh, holders and potential users, and that would mean it would come down to the US. And Putin's you know, thoughts may be, well, why would the US you, you know, respond with nuclear weapons to my use of nuclear weapons over something that's happening in Ukraine? Um, so NATO's options are just getting a bit narrower or have been made a bit narrower by uh, poor messaging coming out of France and by the chaos in the UK, and I really rather hope that gets cleared up in the coming weeks.
0: Uh, Indeed, Sash, and uh, obviously nuclear concerns are uh, running high given some of Russia's uh, rhetoric, and I should note that British Defence Secretary Ben Wallace uh, made an emergency visit to Washington uh, last week to discuss uh, shared security concerns uh, and and it was suspected that nuclear may have been on that uh, agenda. Days later, uh, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin called his Russian counterpart, Sergei uh, Shoigu. So uh, it was certainly an interesting uh, week. Anyway, moving on. Um, we have about a minute, unfortunately. Uh, that's, all, that's,
3: that's all she needs. That's all she needs. She's been passed uh, so- 44 days.
0: Liz uh, Liz Truss, um, as, as you pointed out, uh, at least 10 days, 12 days of her administration uh, was taken up with Her Majesty's uh, funeral. Um, where are we going? Where are we and what does this tell us and what are we going to hear more importantly from Jeremy Hunt next week? Uh, because he said that uh, by Thanksgiving, excuse me, by Halloween, there's going to be the new budget, higher tax rates, more cuts in spending. What does that mean, and does defence escape unscathed in the meantime?
3: Last question first. Ben Wallace uh, has made it very clear that he will fight the corner of defence for, for as long as he is uh, uh, in office. And I think that defence will probably get away relatively likely. Will it get extra money? Unlikely. It, there are two um, very, very soft-penciled uh, spending targets in for, for defence, which actually Boris Johnson started... Two and a half percent of GDP by 2025 ish, three percent of GDP by 3030 ish. My feeling will be that the two and a half percent will be later, but the you know the three percent is entirely possible. But let's face it, we will be into we will be two governments away by then. Um, I think the uh, you know the, the discussions between Ben Wallace and, and Jeremy Hunt will be very very, um, uh, and it will be very very uh, strong. You know, uh, if Boris Johnson did come back as premier, I think that would split the Conservative Party irrevocably and almost immediately. You've got to remember, two thirds of the MPs were prepared to vote against him in a no confidence mo- uh, motion, and that's why he left in the first place.
0: Well, I, I think it's interesting that at least Rishi Sunak, uh, you know, I, th- I think is too classy of a guy, but could say, I told you so, <laughs> about, about Liz Truss. He's got to be uh, really
3: careful not to do that because that insults that insults his potential electors. I think we uh, can say that for him.
0: In, in, indeed. Um, Sash, always a pleasure. Thanks so very much for making time for us uh, every weekend as, as as you do and look forward to having everybody together next week. In the meantime, uh, have a great, uh, what's left of the weekend, uh, a great week and see you next week. Thanks very much.
3: Thanks a lot, Vargo. See you next week.